Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our study into the book of Revelation. You know, these first five episodes have really allowed us to get the context, lay the foundation, huh? And so we have started our initial reflections into the verses themselves. And last time we were together, we left off uh, on verse 10. So why don't we pick up there, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, and we will start with verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. That's verse 11 there. So, what is the value of these two verses? Well, we have already seen how the term the Lord's Day calls to mind both the Day of Judgment, the Day of the Lord, right, as well as the Eucharist, which the early church celebrated on Sunday, the Day of the Lord's Resurrection. The trumpet mentioned here brings both of these images together, huh? In the Old Testament, a trumpet is blown to warn the people that God's judgment is coming. We read in Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 14 and 16, that the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities. Now, at the same time, the trumpet is also to be seen as a liturgical instrument. It was used in the temple by the priests as well as in sacred processions. In Ezra, chapter 3, verse 10, what do we read? The priests in their vestments came forward with, what? Trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Later we will see how these two uses are connected with another occasion on which the trumpet was used, and on this occasion, battle. So we will speak much more to the importance of the trumpet as it relates to the liturgy as we go through this book. I also wanted, before we go any further, to capture the importance of the Spirit in Revelation. huh? While John uses the term seven spirits to refer to the activity of the Holy Spirit in the world, and this is what we already talked about, he uses spirit in the singular to refer to the prophetic activity of the Holy Spirit in the church, right? Pneuma is the Greek word, pneuma. Seven instances occur in the oracles to the churches, these seven churches, indicating that the words of the risen Lord come by means of the Spirit, right? Four times John uses the phrase, in the Spirit, to indicate what? That the Holy Spirit is the source of His vision. And this should not be underestimated or undervalued, because if we are going to see as God wants us to see, it will always be what? In the Spirit, now, my dear friends, what else could we glean from this passage? 
in its spiritual context. Imagine yourself exiled for your Christian faith to a remote island, cut off from all your family and loved ones. How would you respond? Would you continue to pray without mass or your parish community to support you? Would you consider yourself a partner? And as John would put it, the distress, the kingdom, and the endurance we have in Jesus with all your brothers and sisters in Christ around the world? Would you be ready to hear God speak to you? Not just about your trying circumstances, but also about his people and his purposes. And think about that. I mean, the best way to know what you would do is to reflect on what you do now, right? Do you maintain your prayer life when there is no one else praying around you? Do you remember with your prayers and alms those who are suffering for their faith around the world? Think about it, my friends. When we face hardships, let us do our best to remember that it is not all about us, huh? but about God and his kingdom, and pray and act accordingly. And if you do that, you will be well on your way. Okay, Revelation 1, verses 12 to 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden girdle round his breast. Now, these verses are rich. <laughs> At first, it seems strange that John turns to see a voice, right? You ever think about that? He turns to see a voice. However, John is probably alluding to an ancient vision of, once again, Daniel chapter 7, verse 11. In that verse, he says what? Then I beheld the voice, one like a son of man. This is similar to John, is it not? Who turns to see a voice and then beholds one like a son of man. As we shall see, Daniel chapter 7, is one of the most important Old Testament passages for understanding the book of Revelation. I, I think I have already made that point, but if I didn't hear it, Daniel chapter 7 is very important. Images such as the Son of Man, beasts, and kingdom, used all throughout the apocalypse, are also found in that Old Testament chapter, Daniel chapter 7. Now, what about the seven golden lampstands? Well, the seven gold lampstands are seven menorahs, the seven branched candlestick. Most Americans are probably familiar with this symbol since modern Jews frequently use it, especially around Hanukkah. When this lampstand stood in the Holy of Holies inside the Jerusalem temple. Thus, in seeing the seven gold lampstands, John finds himself in the what? Heavenly temple. It's interesting, John's vision of Christ in the midst of the seven lampstands is also echoed in the traditional arrangement of three candlesticks placed on either side of the crucifix on the high altar. Christ is the main candle, the light of the world, with three candles on either side. Brothers and sisters, we are made to contemplate what John is wanting us to see, the heavenly temple come down here on earth in the liturgy. Now, what does the word contemplate mean? Right, it comes from the Latin 
uh, contemplatio. It means to look at, to gaze, to stare. And it's just not a looking at, a gazing, or a staring for the sake of just looking at something. No, it's more about a contemplating, a gazing, to get behind or underneath what you are looking at, right? If you want to enter into the mysteries of God, you contemplate the mysteries of God. You just don't look at it, but into it, through it, seeing the new depth dimension beyond it. So contemplating these verses, getting behind them, getting underneath them, seeing in and through them, grabbing the new depth dimension beyond them. This is what it means to ponder sacred scripture. This is what it means to spend time with sacred scripture. Okay, how about that phrase, the Son of Man? The Son of Man is a term frequently used for Jesus in the New Testament, but what exactly does it mean? Some scholars would argue that Son of Man is simply a title of humility, Jesus's way of saying, I'm just a lowly Son of Man. However, once we examine the background of this term, we find that it has a much deeper meaning. Jesus used the phrase Son of Man to describe himself more than any other term. Only Jesus uses this special term to describe his identity. And from this, we can see just how important it is to understand the term Son of Man. Although this term is used all throughout the Old Testament, it is Daniel 7 that is the all-important source text for Jesus' use of it. For example, Daniel 7 links the Son of Man with a coming in the clouds, as Jesus in the Gospels frequently did. We see in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, chapter 26, verse 64, him using the Son of Man. Mark chapter 13, verse 26, chapter 14, verse 62, to name a few. Moreover, the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is the one who brings the kingdom of God to the saints. This was another important theme of our Lord's ministry, as he states in passages like Luke chapter 4, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. I know in our last time together, we finished off with a reflection into this very thing, did we not? Now, Daniel's historical situation is very important to appreciate the significance of the Son of Man. Daniel 7 tells of four beasts that are four kingdoms, and these four kingdoms will persecute the Jews, right? What were those four kingdoms? Well, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and of course Rome. The people in Christ's day recognized that they were living in the time of the fourth beast, since Daniel prophesied that the Son of Man would come at the time of this beast, messianic hopes were at a fever pitch in our Lord's day. For Daniel, my friends, the Son of Man does not simply describe a human Messiah. This Son is a supernatural figure. He looks like a man, but he is much more than that. The Son of Man receives from God the kingdom which will be given to the saints. In our Lord's day, this prophecy was so well known, and its implications were clear. Rome would fall, and the righteous would receive the kingdom. It is no wonder 
why the Jews were feeling the way they were about our Lord. Now, this also has implications for the church, specifically Catholics and Roman Catholics. Ever wonder why it's so important that we are not only Catholic, but Roman Catholic? Well, the early Christians knew why. Saints like Peter and Paul went to Rome, hoping that by the shedding of their blood, the fourth beast would what? Convert, so that the kingdom of God would be made manifest through it. The term Roman Catholic reflects not some kind of implicit political alliance between the church and Italy, or any earthly power for that matter, but the fulfillment of God's plan, which he announced through Daniel. Okay, the vestments of Christ are also noteworthy that we read of in verse 13. They seem to be a reference to Christ's role as high priest, and we've already talked about this, right? Christ as the new Adam. What were these vestments about? Well, let's start with the long robe. The long robe was worn by the high priest. And we can go back into the Old Testament and name off a number of passages, to the least of which would be Exodus 28, verse 4, chapter 29, verse 5, Wisdom, chapter 18, verse 24, and there are many others. The high priest wearing the long robe, as well as the girdle, right? Exodus chapter 28, verse 4, chapter 39, verse 29. This concurs with the testimony of the ancient historian Josephus. The high priest puts on that which is called a girdle, which means something that is tied. Over this he wore a linen vestment made of fine flax doubled. This vestment reaches down to the feet. Incidentally, from this we can see the similarities between the Jewish high priest and the celebrant at Mass, right, who wears a stole covered with a chasuble. Everything that the priest wears and does during Mass, my friends, has at least in seed form its root in the Old Testament. So John's vision of Christ, therefore, shows Christ to be the heavenly high priest. His priestly role, which is also highlighted by the fact that he stands in the midst of the lampstands, since tending to the menorah was the high priest's duty. Indeed, Christ's priestly role has already been implicitly mentioned, has it not, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, where Christ is said to have freed us by his blood, a reference to his sacrifice, which makes us a kingdom of priests. So to get into the book of Revelation is to get into the liturgy, and at the same time is to get into the significance of the priesthood. Brothers and sisters, it's everywhere. And I know this is rich, but it's why I talk about the importance of contemplating this text, to go through it carefully, methodically, verse by verse, to see how John develops what he has seen. All right, chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth issued a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's such a beautiful image. <laughs> such a beautiful image. You know, much of this imagery here is taken not only from Daniel 7, 
but also from Daniel 10. Listen to Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 to 6. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen whose loins were girded with gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the noise of a multitude. Isn't it fascinating, my friend? I mean, Daniel's vision of the divine warrior is very similar to John's vision of Jesus. Both are girded with gold. Both have fiery eyes. Both have the appearance of bronze. And both speak with a thundering voice. The voice in Daniel sounds like a multitude. The one John hears sounds like, <clears throat> sounds like what? Many waters. That's interesting. John later says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, that the voice of the multitude sounds like many waters. So John has the book of Daniel, chapter 7, chapter 10, as a backdrop to draw from, to reinforce, I'm sure, what he saw. The seven stars in our Lord's hands, we are later told, are the seven angels of the seven churches in, in verse 20. Now, the link between God's people and the menorah's seven lamps was already established in Jewish tradition. The seven lamps in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2, were often linked with the saints of Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, who, it is said, will shine like the seven stars. John is simply following the tradition of linking the lampstands with God's people. And I believe this to be very important because are we not called to be a light for Christ? And how do we become a light for Christ? Well, go to Mass. You see what's going on there? Okay, another possible source for the imagery of the seven stars may also be found on imperial coins. Roman emperors used the image of the seven stars and the coins that they minted as a symbol of their own political power. I find that interesting. The, the fact that John sees Jesus holding the stars would to some degree imply that he is the true king of kings. How about the two-edged sword? Well, the two-edged sword coming from the mouth of Christ recalls to mind Isaiah chapter 11, that all-important prophecy that talks about the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. In those series of verses, chapter 11, Verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and following, we read the prophecy about the Messiah who will smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. This two-edged language also recalls God's covenant judgment, where we read in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 25, And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant, and if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of of the enemy. And of course, as we've already talked about, this covenant judgment came in the year 70 AD. How about John's vision of Jesus's face shining like the sun in full strength? This echoes Daniel's description of the Son of Man's face as having the appearance of lightning. However, the exact wording, shining like the sun in full strength, comes from a Greek version of Judges chapter 5 verse 31 which describes a divine warrior. In fact, this passage in Judges was often linked with the passage from Daniel 12 and Zechariah 4 previously mentioned. Now, why are we talking about this? Because it's very important 
that as we are going through the book of Revelation, we see the continuity that not only exists between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but all of these important passages that show the continuity of the prophetic message of the Old Testament and how it is being fulfilled in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation. You can never separate one from the other, old from the new or new from the old. And for that matter, especially how Christ and the church fulfills the Old Testament. So, our Lord is described in priestly terms. But, as I just mentioned, he is also described as the heavenly warrior of Daniel 10. John's vision shares much in common with so many other visions of heavenly warriors in the Old Testament. I just mentioned Joshua 5. If you were to go to Joshua 5, verse 13, what do we read? Joshua looked, and behold, a man standing before him with his drawn sword in hand. And in verse 14, Joshua then falls at his feet as Daniel and John do. Okay, again, interpreting Scripture within that all-important word of continuity. So why is John connecting priesthood and battle? Well, he is simply following the example of the Old Testament. One of the most dramatic examples of this connection is the defeat, of course, in Jericho that we read about in the book of Joshua, chapters 5 to 6. A story that, as we will find out, is the backdrop for Revelation chapters 8 to 11. It is not unlikely that John has this story in his rearview mirror. Let us consider this briefly. Joshua, in leading the Israelites to the Promised Land, is directed by the Lord to the biggest Canaanite stronghold of them all, Jericho. This city was surrounded by, as many of you know, huge walls, right? And yet God tells Joshua to go to the city and capture it. To Joshua, it might have been almost humorous. How was little Israel, a wandering nation of nomads, supposed to win? Not to fear, right? Because God had a plan. But what was this plan? Was this plan tied to some kind of atom bomb? Lightning from heaven? Special swords from the angels? No. God explains that Israel will defeat Jericho by marching around the city. Here's the plan, God tells Joshua. For six days, all the people will march around the city with the Ark of the Covenant. And you will be led by seven priests who will blow, what? Seven trumpets. And on the seventh day, God tells Joshua, they must walk around seven times. And when they are done, the priest will blow the trumpets and all the people will shout. By doing this, the walls will come down. Now, I'm sure the people of Jericho found this comical. Here they see little Israel marching around in circles. How silly does that look? <laughs> I'm sure they probably scoffed, thinking to themselves, yeah, this is really intimidating. What would have the people of Jericho seen that day, that last day? Maybe they looked over their walls and saw Israel marching around and around, watching some of them struggle to keep the pace in that hot Middle Eastern sun. Yet as we know, Israel got the last laugh. 
because true to God's word, the walls tumbled down and Jericho was defeated. What is the moral lesson? Liturgy is war. By praying together with the priests and blowing the trumpets before the ark, Israel was much more powerful than any other military, for they were seeking God's help. This lesson is taught over and over again throughout the book of Revelation. All the events in John's vision, from the pestilence and famine to the final destruction of the city, begin with some liturgical prayer or action of the angels and saints in heaven. The saints worship God, and the consequences, my friends, are literally speaking, earth-shattering. Brothers and sisters, we are to draw something from this, are we not? Everywhere around us, there is cause for despair. But by going to Mass, and by becoming a light of Christ, what we find is that when we are united in the liturgical Christ— There is great power, a power that is greater than any military, because it is the power of Christ living within us. And with that, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift and opportunity to reflect into the richness of your word, the richness of the book of Revelation, the richness of the liturgy itself. Then indeed, Every time we go to Mass, we are that much stronger, made into that much more of a warrior for you. Lord, you know that there is a battle out there, and you have given us the tools and the weapons in the sacramental life of the Church, sacred scripture, and all those prayers we pray that we might be stronger in you to defeat the adversary. We do pray for the grace and strength this day, this evening that we might overcome our temptations, and that we might give you glory in all that we do. We pray these things in that prayer you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We turn to your mother Mary as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.